I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. What you believe matters. Belief guides action and informs the person you are becoming, the direction of your life, the impact you make on the world around you. All of spiritual formation begins with belief. So, what do we believe? And two weeks ago, I had the COVID. I had COVID number 19. I'm fine now. Uh, officially cleared by the CDC to rejoin the world. I called them. They said it's fine. And, uh, you know, having been off the news for a very long time now, I haven't looked at any news headlines in, I don't know, a year or something like that. I, I briefly forgot how hilariously hyperbolic it all is when I, I foolishly Googled, when will my taste return? And of course, the result, the immediate results were like, lost taste may be sign that you are about to drop dead, or, you know, losing taste may be permanent and lead to spontaneous combustion. Um, turns out my taste came back two days later, and I did not explode yet. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of this sickness, but it turns out it is one divisive sickness. Who knew? The level of confusion and derision surrounding this microscopic contagion reminds me of the way that people talked about AIDS in the 80s. See, I was a, a child in the 80s when the HIV and AIDS first came on the scene, and I remember this menacing thing on the periphery of popular culture. And I remember the real world, San Francisco. Anyone remember real world, 1993, San Francisco? Why are you shaking your head, Dave, like you're judging it already? Listen to the story. Oh, okay. Ten is too young to watch the real world, San Francisco? Probably, if you have good parents. Yeah, probably. Um, the real world, if you didn't know, was kind of proto-reality television. It launched the modern reality TV concept, so the guys who made this up were sort of like the Oppenheimers of television. Uh, not unlike a slew of copycat shows that followed it, the real world was your basic strangers in a house living together on camera setup. And I can't lie to you, uh, Van City, I was there. I was watching all that real world, seasons one through four at least, just loving it, just living in it. I talk a big anti-reality TV game these days, but in the early 90s, I was in, in for the real world at least. And what set uh, real world San Francisco apart from seasons one and two was easily uh, Pedro Zamora, who was gasp HIV positive at the time of filming. And back then, in 1993, nearly a decade after the first reported case of HIV, Pedro's housemates were still confused about the virus. In fact, when Pedro opened up to the cast about being HIV positive, some of them were terrified that they may have already caught it simply by living with him, breathing around him, sharing silverware and toilet seats and that kind of thing. And we, the viewers, were judging them. Even me as a kid, the show told us to do it. It played sad, sympathetic music around Pedro and scary, sinister-sounding music around his panicked roommates. So we rolled our eyes and we said, ugh, oh, HIV doesn't work that way. Don't they know that? But did we? Who knew what to think? There was a political storm cloud swirling around HIV AIDS. There was religious fanaticism. There were conspiracy theories and mountains of misinformation. Nothing like today. COVID, if you didn't know, is about the worst acronym ever. 
for a, for a disease, for coronavirus disease, actually. I didn't know this until this week. Making CO short for corona, VI short for virus, and D short for disease. I don't know why they didn't keep the two-letter pattern and call it covid but whatever. What do I know? I don't get to name diseases. For a minority of people who contract the coronavirus and develop COVID, the ramifications can be very serious. And I use the word minority because it's factually accurate, minority meaning quite literally smaller, smaller number of a part. Truth is, according to WHO and the CDC and these other number-crunching bigwigs, a staggering number of human beings have come down with COVID, including me and lots of other people in the church. Most of the staff, small minority of that very high number end up in the hospital, and an even smaller minority of them actually die from the disease. But of course, people are more than numbers, and minority or not, if someone you love gets very sick or even dies, stats don't mean much to you one way or the other. And I've experienced both personally. A large number of people I know have come down with COVID, especially recently. In fact, a doctor friend of mine in Portland recently said that all of us, these are his words, all of us will eventually contract the Omicron strain. And most of the people I know to catch any variant of coronavirus recovered quickly with mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. And then there was Abby's grandpa, who was very old, very sick, very bad shape when he then got COVID and he died shortly thereafter. Truth is, a lot of people have died from COVID and that toll has been extremely difficult and indescribably painful for a lot of people all over the world. But another truth is that I personally was never afraid for myself or my family because none of us are at any serious risk. All of us belonging to that sizable majority of people for whom the disease amounts to brief or minor cold symptoms or no symptoms at all. And when people I know get sick, regardless of what kind of symptom or sick, risk or no risk, I never say, who cares? I check in on them. I think about them. I pray for them. And chances are, Talking about something as incendiary as COVID this way will make someone hearing this squirm. It all depends on what you believe. And thus far, I haven't actually given my opinion on any COVID-related thing. I've only relayed summaries of figures I looked up on the CDC website and shared personal anecdotes. But if you've come to believe one of the two kind of main polarizing narratives around COVID, maybe you think I sound as if I'm diminishing the seriousness of the pandemic. If you've come to believe the other narrative, you may think I'm sounding too dramatic. I know someone whose children were, uh, according to them, weeping the first time they left the house in many months uh, into the pandemic, absolutely terrified that their young and healthy dad would fall ill and die, despite being at no known risk at all. Meanwhile, in my house, my kids laughed and gasped at our little cardboard positive tests as if they'd seen a celebrity. That's what it sounded like. They said, what? We have COVID. <laughs> COVID has been both serious and disastrous. It's a terrible plague of death and destruction for a great many people around the world. And for others, it amounts to a mild headache or an evening of coughing. And that is a very difficult dichotomy to embrace. So, people tend to relax into extremes because black and white is much easier than gray. And the world has been shaped by that turmoil. And again, it all comes down to what you believe. And not just about COVID, but about the political landscape of America, about other people, about the good guys and the bad guys, about who is on what side, about ethics and morality and science and religion in the biggest, broadest sense. 
I have seen people become more angry and resentful and cynical or passive-aggressive or even depressed. I've seen the way people treat their friends change. The entire direction of their lives rerouted because of what they believe about what has happened over the last couple of years. What you believe not only determines what you do, it shapes the person you are becoming and the world around you, for better or for worse. Open your Bibles to the letter we call 1 Timothy in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to consult the table of contents. Tonight, we are beginning a new series all about doctrine called Uncompromising Orthodoxy. Orthodox is a word that means right belief. And throughout the history of the Christian movement, it has been a word used to describe the kind of agreed-upon fundamental belief that constitutes what it means to follow Jesus or to call yourself a Christian. Belief, orthodoxy, doctrine, these may not sound like ideas that are pressing in your everyday life, but doctrine is not an empty intellectual museum reserved for pastors and academics. Doctrine is essential for all disciples of Jesus in day-to-day life, in trials and suffering, in major decisions, in the simple rhythms of living, and in persevering on the narrow road of discipleship without giving up. Let me show you. Let's read from Paul's letter to his protege named Timothy. Now, for context, Paul, if you didn't know, is a master apprentice of Jesus who spent years traveling around the ancient world, spreading the story of Jesus' kingship, planting new churches, kind of growing the Jesus movement. And Paul, on his journeys, encountered an interesting cast of characters. Some of them became his trusted co-workers in the movement of the kingdom of God. One in particular was a young man called Timothy. He was mentored by Paul for years before Paul began to send him out on missions of his own. And one such mission came when Paul got word of big problems unfolding within a church uh, in a city called Ephesus. A group of leaders had kind of infiltrated the church and begun to spread dangerous false teaching about the way of Jesus or what we would call bad doctrine. And so Paul sent his trusted protege and co-worker Timothy to confront the false teachers and deal with the problem at the church in Ephesus. So would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? And let's read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with the very first verse. Paul writes, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings have come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So some of the false teaching proliferating amongst the church in Ephesus had to do with rules about dietary restrictions and marriage. Verse 4, everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, if you point out the correct teaching, you will be a good minister of King Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths, old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, 
in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, what we're doing right now, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. What an incredible claim. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And Paul makes a direct connection between doctrine and what it means to be saved. Now, of course, your relationship with God and your apprenticeship to Jesus are not based solely on a set of intellectual beliefs. But belief determines action and, again, shapes not only the person you are becoming, but the impression that you make on the world around you. All over the world, for hundreds of years and up to this very day, there are people who willingly go to death or face torture and persecution rather than renounce their belief in Jesus as God and King. These are people who die for belief. And think about this, today's martyrs, this still happens all over the world, unlike the apostles who witnessed firsthand the miracles of Jesus, the death and burial of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus that went on to die, they went on to die rather than renounce their belief. That's pretty incredible, but that makes a little more sense. These people, today's martyrs, like you and me, never saw Jesus with their own eyes, had no metaphysical proof of his claims, and yet they believed them even unto death. What you believe matters. Pastor and author A.W. Tozer famously claimed that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because what you believe, for better or for worse, informs how you live and thus who you become. Orthodoxy or right belief becomes orthopraxy or right practice. And see, the thing that we call spiritual formation, which is the process by which you are changed over time, is not a uniquely Christian concept. We say this all the time. Spiritual formation is a human thing. We are all being formed all the time. We are being shaped into someone and something else every single day of our lives. To be human is kind of a dynamic thing. It's never a static, unchanging state. Or put another way, we're all disciples of someone or something. The question, is, the question isn't, are you a disciple? The question is, who or what are you a disciple of? It might be your parents or your host culture or your political party and ideology, some author, some podcast, or some social media personality, a combination of these things. Who is it? If you plot the trajectory of your character arc some 20 or 30 years into the future, ask yourself, who am I becoming? Is it more like Jesus, expressed, of course, through your personality, your gender, your stage of life, or is it someone else? And really, there are two paradigms for spiritual formation that you have to understand. The first is called unintentional spiritual formation, and this is how you're being formed just by waking up tomorrow and living your life day to day. It requires no intentionality nor any focus on your apprenticeship to Jesus. It is inevitable, and it all starts with belief, the stories 
that we believe, about life and the world, about what it means to be a human being, what you think is true. Secondly, you're being formed by your habits. What you do on a regular basis shapes who you become. Our habits shape the things that we love for better or for worse. And thirdly, you're being shaped by your relationships. Most of us become more like the people we spend time with the more we spend time with them. And I realize that varies from person to person, but regardless of how strong-willed you imagine yourself to be, how impervious to influence, given enough time and enough proximity, you will absorb some of the people with whom you spend all your time. And fourthly, all of that is taking place in an environment. For most of us, anyway, that's the Vancouver, Portland metro area, which is something of a a formation machine. Influential culture is being crafted in this nearby urban core and then permeating not just the metro area in which we live, but slowly shaping an entire region of the Pacific Northwest. And because of globalization, it's all out everywhere. It's a whole thing. But then there are the smaller environments in which we carry out the routines of our everyday life. You have the microcultures of your home and your family and your friends and your workplaces and your friend groups, your peer groups. The stories that we believe, together with your habits, your relationships, all within the environment in which we live, they all have this kind of synergistic energy to conspire and collaborate and shaping you into a certain type of person slowly over time. So if this is how we change to become more like our environment, more like our friends and coworkers, more like the habits in which we indulge, how do we change to become more like Jesus of Nazareth? Garrett, leave this uh, here for a minute. The idea of Christian spiritual formation is counter-formation. What I mean is that we are working to kind of offset the rest of our lives, the stories that we believe, our relationships, all the things that I just said. And again, it all starts with belief. So the first way that we do counter-formation against the inevitable formation that happens every day is through teaching. Um, The scriptures, Bible studies, sermons, the Sunday gathering, reading books about following Jesus or podcasts or theology, all of those things play a vital role in your transformation as you fill your mind up with learning, teaching about the things of Jesus. And what we believe guides what we do. So next in the paradigm comes practice. You imagine the way of Jesus as akin to mastering the piano or becoming a black belt or learning a second language. To master any of those things requires training and practice. If we want to become the kind of people for whom the Sermon on the Mount is not only possible, but altogether doable, you have to practice. And third in counterformation is community. Now, community, unlike relationships, uh, which are kind of mostly unintentional or inevitable, circumstantial, Community is the family of God all around you. You go out of your way to put them in your life and to be in their lives. And that could be, that could be a group of peers, close friends that are all following Jesus together, or it could be the collection of folks with whom you went through our basics class, you don't know them at all before then, and then all of a sudden you're in a Van City community. Either way, you cannot follow Jesus by yourself. And then, rather than the passive environment of unintentional spiritual formation, our environment as disciples of Jesus is the Holy Spirit, which is more than a subculture or a city or your home or the digital world. The Spirit of Jesus becomes your environment. The idea is that He will become your constant state of being, and in that constant state of connectedness to the Father, you are changed slowly over time. All of that, again, happens slowly over time, And it happens through suffering or the hard knocks 
of life. How do you change to be like Jesus? Through teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit over time and through suffering. But notice, whether it's intentional or decidedly less so, all of formation, all of you changing into someone else, begins with what you believe. And so, doctrine matters. Those core beliefs that make up orthodoxy, right belief, these precious fundamental beliefs to disciples of Jesus all over the world across centuries, unifying the Christian movement, matter. But doctrine is out of style. It's really no secret. Y'all know this. Here's the thing. Depending on your history with church and God and Christianity and all that, we've all likely had different experiences with doctrine. I grew up Southern Baptist, and if you don't know anything about uh, Southern Baptist, these guys are pretty big on doctrine. Uh, so much so, dare I say, that uh, doctrine has at times been perhaps overemphasized uh, over things like kindness and tact and humility. Um, the same thing can be said of other doctrine-serious church traditions, and maybe that's been your story as well. But then, you know, a funny thing happened. I'm not Southern Baptist anymore. They don't want me. Um, and I'm not uh, Reformed, I'm not Catholic, I'm not the, I don't belong to the famously doctrine-emphasizing traditions of our movement. And what happened in my journey as a disciple of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, is I wound up surrounded by a lot of folks who had similarly bad experiences with church. And the last thing any of us wanted was to get serious about doctrine. Doctrine is too settled, we thought, too definitive too close-minded. And what this new crop of evolving semi-Christians wanted was to deconstruct doctrine, not to reinforce it. We wanted to challenge it, not solidify it. Solid doctrine is not accommodating, we thought. And so there were needles to burst the bubbles once so sacred, and things were said like, isn't love what really matters? But love defined by whom? And according to whose authority? And people started to say, well, you know, what's true for you is true for you, but then is any one way of living better than another? And if not, how do you critique things like racism or oppression or injustice? If what's true for you is true for you, how does any of that matter? If we believe one thing and not another thing, isn't that doctrine? If it's objectively true that there are bad ways of living and bad things that one can believe, who says which is which? Everyone already has doctrine. It might be clumsy or uninformed or even contradictory, but we all have it. And we live according to what we believe, what we really believe anyway. And for years now, I've sat with men and women wrestling with their belief, as all of us do and should do as disciples of Jesus. And I've realized that when I pull at the thread of doubt or dwindling belief or the crisis of faith, I uncover an issue in the foundation, in the doctrine, or in the core belief. And it's easy to see why doctrine gives so many of us a headache. It's been this way for thousands of years. Read the Gospels. When Jesus began the kingdom movement with 12 friends, there were constant theological disagreements amongst his followers, disagreements over how to pray or how to carry out spiritual disciplines or how to interpret the Old Testament, how to worship, who was in, who was out. And Jesus' technique in resolving these disputes was attempting to preserve unity 
but with a naked unwillingness to compromise the truth. And then the church grew. Read Acts. Again, constant theological disagreements over who should be in leadership and at what capacity, which religious customs should be observed, which were null and void. Then read Paul's letters to the churches of the first century. More disagreements about how to carry out church discipline over Christian conduct in the public square, over alcohol, over sexuality, over the Lord's Supper. Nothing like today. And then, this is a joke, by the way, this is a running gag. Just anytime I say it, just a at least for my benefit, laugh. Um, and then if you read church history, it really it just keeps going. In the first few centuries of the Christian movement, um, there grew official church councils, sort of like a, a group of elders over the entire Christian movement who would meet and resolve doctrinal issues to preserve unity without compromising the truth. And that's what the church is still after today. We still disagree all the time, but there's a spectrum of disagreement when we disagree well. Our friend Dr. Gary Brashears has been helping his students understand that spectrum for years with this, the pyramid of theological disagreement. If you've gone through our basics class, we've taught this, you've heard it already, but bear with me, here it comes again. At the narrow top of the pyramid are the die for issues, which is a small category that includes things like Jesus is Lord, He is the incarnation of the Creator God who died on the cross was raised again on the third day. He is the ultimate judge and authority, and so on. The kinds of things that, God forbid, if I were ever held at gunpoint and asked to deny, I would die rather than deny those things. And then below that, you have divide over issues, doctrinal disputes that eventually fragmented the church historically, resulting in innumerable denominations and traditions and movements. So you've got Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Protestants and Pentecostals and Calvinists and Arminians and so on. But notice, this category is below died for. So everybody is still Christian, they just disagree. And the easiest example here is the split between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. We at Van City, if you haven't noticed, are not Catholic, but we do believe that Catholics can be brothers and sisters in the way. Even so, the differences in our theology and practice are so pronounced that they necessitate two unique expressions of church. And in that sense, we are divided. But the unity we can preserve, even in division, is by continuing to love and learn from one another rather than treating one another with discriminating prejudice and fretful hand-reading. Oh my God, they're so horrifying, they don't think what we think. There are aspects of Catholic theology with which I strongly disagree, but I happily read, listen to, learn from Catholic theologians, writers, thinkers, priests, and nuns really on a regular basis. Uh, beneath that, you have the debate over issues, issues that warrant important, legitimate conversation, debate, disagreement, but you don't necessarily have to split up over them. And then finally, below that, you have the uh, decide on issues, things that are no big deal at all. I don't care. You decide. The easiest example I think we use in basics is how old should a kid be when they're in the gathering or go to their kid's class? I don't care. If you want your kid to be up here, great. If you want them to go downstairs, knock yourself out. You decide. But when doctrine is abused, everything gets pushed up the pyramid to the tippy-tot, and you get all kinds of insane bickering and dramatic high-stakes arguing over the age of the earth and the best way to take communion as if these are all die-for issues. And you start to hear this phrase, the gospel is at stake. 
these things, uh, the age of the earth and how we take communion, may be interesting and worth discussion, maybe even worth debate, but is the gospel really at stake? And how can you tell? Well, you can't always do it, but we can. Among the ancient Jewish manuscripts that came to be known famously as the Dead Sea Scrolls, one such document was first known as the Manual of Discipline, which I think sounds awesome. But then it was later designated the Community Rule, which is also awesome. And in it, an ancient Jewish community refers to the Bible as the scroll of meditation. They use the same word that appears in Psalm 1, if you're familiar with that poem. For centuries upon centuries, for thousands of years, those who, in the language of Psalm 1, delight in the Scriptures, who meditate on them night and day, have also understood that the complex beauty of this library of writings is simply too extraordinary to house in one lonesome brain. Reading the Bible and working out doctrine requires entire communities of men and women, young and old, to get it dedicated to God's authority vested in the text and to pondering what it says and working out what it means together, never in isolation. There's a kind of theory and science to the whole thing. So doctors, for example, have the medical community. If someone within the medical community comes along suddenly arguing, hey, I have discovered the cure for the common cold, the rest of the medical community will appropriately respond by asking, what is it? Show us your research. Let us read it and test it. Let us see how it harmonizes or deviates from the research of other people who have come before you. And if that purported cold-curing miracle turns out to be Windex, and if the one claiming the discovery scorns the existing science and research, forget all that stuff that came before it, and if Windex doesn't cure the common cold, then the claim is rejected as false, or what we would call heresy. Even if someone really, really wants Windex to cure the common cold, even if it feels so right to them, even if the healing powers of Windex would put them on the right side of history, if it's not true, it just isn't true. Like any endeavor involving human beings, error and corruption can and do creep into this process from time to time. The community rule isn't perfect, but it is necessary and crucial. The community rule honors the wisdom and work of the medical tradition in this example. And when it works best, it opens itself to entertain and evaluate new ideas that might deviate from tradition but ultimately provide a better understanding and practice of medicine, but not before they are tested by the community. And this is exactly how the church applies the community rule to understanding the scriptures and theology. This is how we have established and maintained orthodoxy for centuries. It isn't perfect, but it is necessary and crucial, bringing the minds of countless women and men from all over the world across many traditions and backgrounds and walks of life across centuries of the Christian movement to bear on how we understand what the Bible intends to teach and how we follow Jesus together. This diverse collective mind becomes an ongoing effort to guard against misinterpretation and false teaching and abuse. And if and when someone comes along with a new reading of the Bible, a reading that steps beyond that rich, diverse, ancient tradition, it must be tested by the community. 
new readings that harmonize with the whole of Scripture, with our sincere theological effort to understand the Bible, and with the community that belongs to the Jesus tradition, are accepted into the open-mindedness of orthodoxy. Not without debate, not without disagreement, but they become part of the tradition. Ideas that deviate from all of those things are rejected as heresy, false teaching. This way, no one person is responsible for the profundity of the Bible. And sure, there may be debate and disagreement, and even on some level division, but we work it out and we follow Jesus. That's a lot better than trying to figure it out all on your own. Sometimes we really want Windex to cure the common cold, even though centuries of study from people all over the world agree that it does not. And then, frustrated and hurt, we go looking for someone, anyone that will tell us that Windex does cure the common cold, and with enough looking, you can find such a person, several people, and you can build a little movement around it. Modern, affluent American people love to do this, to shake our superior heads at those poor and oppressed people of color around the world who wrote the Bible and died to preserve its teaching. And they say, sorry, you sad, deluded barbarians, a few young, rich, educated white Americans now know better, get with the times, we have a new take on miracles, on sexuality, on God, on whatever it may be. Do we know more than the authors of Scripture? It's a legitimate question. Do we know more than countless academics and scholars and PhDs and scientists and theologians and writers and thinkers well within orthodoxy for generations? What do we know and what do we believe? The idea is to spend the next few weeks talking about doctrine, talking about what we believe, and talking about why it matters. In the Bible, belief is relational. The Bible never refers to belief as intellectual only, the way we do in kind of modern Western world, as in, I believe in God means I hold the intellectual opinion that God exists. In the Bible, belief involves the mind, but it is always demonstrated by life in action. So my wife, Abby, and I have been married for 13 years now. We believe certain things about marriage and monogamy and romance and affection and self-sacrificial love. And what we believe in our minds about those things determines the course of our relationship and how we treat one another, how we relate to and understand each other. And we know other people, and those people know other people who have, are all across the spectrum on what it means to be married. And some of them deviate from traditional beliefs about marriage or who have experimented with things like non-monogamy, who decided that the reigning norms or the orthodoxy of marriage were stifling and unhealthy. And all of those marriages eventually ended. In the same way, I have seen so many people wrestle with questions and doubts that all of us have when we follow Jesus. Questions and doubts are normal, they're healthy, they do not scare Jesus, He's not insecure. But sometimes a decision gets made to step beyond the community rule, beyond the bounds of orthodoxy or right belief, and eventually their discipleship ends. And I don't want that for our family. It's not important to me really at all to attempt to create an army that agrees on every single theological point. For one, I don't think I could do that. And two, theological diversity is a healthy, beautiful thing. But I want us to discover and rediscover 
the core doctrinal principles beloved by and foundational to the Christian movement, not for some empty academic purpose, but to know and be with God in our belief. Doctrine is not a cold, dead museum for pastors and academics. It informs how you live every single day. What you believe about God will shape how you navigate trials and suffering, complicated seasons with difficult decisions. It will shape the way that you treat your friends, your family, your community. It will steer your vocation and inform your calling. It will be the means by which you organize your days and nights, your life rhythms, the person you are becoming and the mark you are making on your children or your spouse or your friends or your family or the world around you. So my humble request is this. Don't check out. Come with us on this journey. Keep an open mind and see what happens. Belief, any way you slice it, is costly. It should not be a cakewalk, and it should not be painless. Like all relationships, like all love, a true uncompromising orthodoxy costs, and we believe it's worth it. And we go through that together, knowing that we're together and knowing that that matters. Early on in the journey of Christianity, the church developed something called creeds. The word creeds from, comes from a Greek word that means a sign or token used for identification, good or bad. Alternative societies have often used tokens of identification to identify faithful members of a movement. So it could be something like secret handshakes or passwords or matching tattoos or colored bandanas. Project Mayhem had the scars from chemical burns. Uh, the children of the watch identify Orthodox Mandalorians by the creed, this is the way. Um, in the early church, the creeds were doctrinal statements. They were professions of belief. The earliest known Christian creed appears in two of Paul's letters, Romans and 1 Corinthians, and it was quite simply, Jesus is Lord. And it was said to and then echoed by faithful co-laborers in the kingdom of God, and I absolutely love it. Creeds eventually fell out of fashions amongst some Western Protestant movements, likely in the widening distinction between evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism. They're still around but not in the tradition that birthed this church, at least not so much. Today, they freak some of us out because they sound, to the untrained ear, kind of cultish and strange. But the Christian movement has been, and always will be, very strange. It is not a social club, but an alternative society distinct in all the world. It is unlike any other worldview or religion, and it completely inverts many beliefs most precious to the world around us. So creeds, I think, are a beautiful way for us to not only recapture the spirit of the early Christians, but to remember the distinctiveness of this alternative society to which we belong, the Christian movement and the kingdom of God. So that if I say Jesus is Lord to the family of believers, they should respond by saying it back to me, Jesus is Lord, as a confession of belief, of solidarity with the historic Christian movement, and as a promise to fidelity to orthodoxy. Jesus is Lord. There it is. These creeds, they eventually grew and evolved in their distinctiveness and their effort to correct bad theology and solidify core doctrine. The earliest creed used in liturgical traditions by the church, we think, uh, that is, that was read aloud by the family of God on a recurring basis as far back as the 3rd or 4th century, was called the Apostles' Creed. So to end tonight, would you guys stand with me and let's read together as a family the Apostles' Creed.
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, rose again from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.